I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. We're a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, DIY creatives, and coming up tonight, the Island Wave podcast will introduce us to community health workers and the critical role they play connecting all of our community to the important information and resources needed to fight the pandemic and related issues. Before we get there, let's get a COVID update from Intermountain Healthcare. Earlier today, I dropped in on their community update with Dr. Todd Vento, Intermountain Healthcare Infectious Diseases Physician, and he shared the view from inside the hospital. In our seven-day average uh, right now, at least last uh, report out of the state, was that we're about 6,000 cases uh, per day on a seven-day average, and, and certainly we'll, we'll be interested to see what happens uh, over the past weekend. Um, and, and really, at this point, you can pretty much conclude that 95% of that is Omicron based on our sequencing data that we've actually used and some of our molecular techniques that have helped helped us actually estimate Omicron over the past uh, month. So Omicron has pretty much kind of, um, forced Delta out, as it were, at this point. Um, in terms of uh, hospitalizations right now, we're about 465 on our listed hospitalization uh, numbers, and it's about a 10% increase. Um, it's, it's very similar, actually, to the numbers that we saw in September uh, timeframe with Delta. And, um, you know, one of the things that I just caution folks with is, you know, we're using uh, epidemiologic curves from other countries, for example, South Africa and also United Kingdom and Denmark. And we use the last two a little bit more in terms of our estimates because of similar uh, vaccine rates with the United States in general, whereas say South Africa might've had a lot lower vaccination rates. And so when we look at uh, Omicron uh, changes or Omicron estimates or modeling, you know, we, we have to try to compare ourselves to others that are somewhat similar to us. And so if you use those data, you'll see already that they're starting to show that they're coming down from their Omicron uh, peak. And actually, if you look at New York and Washington DC, you can kind of see the same thing as well. Um, so we would expect that for other states in the country as it, it moves westward um, in terms of Omicron's behavior, uh, but some of that will depend on what's the existing immunity in the community, uh, whether that's from uh, natural immunization or vaccination. Um, but I would think that we would probably say late January, early February, based on those trends. And that's what the models are suggesting for Omicron's behavior. Um, some of the bigger concerns uh, we've had, just like the community has had a significant rise in number of cases with Omicron. If you think about, we had a 9,500-ish uh, cases uh, last week, which is really two and a half times the highest we've ever seen in, in the last two years. And that really just has to do with Omicron's transmissibility. It's much more transmissible than the other variants. To that effect, it's actually affected not just our community, but people who live in our community, such as healthcare workers. So we've had uh, at least uh, a 300 uh, number plus or minus increase in our healthcare workers with COVID even over the last three days, uh, puts that around a thousand. Um, right now, uh, that's not affecting us in terms of uh, number of uh, procedures or our, our business operations per se, healthcare delivery um, in terms of uh, any significant changes. However, it does affect our staffing and how we move staff around and ask for volunteers to do um, additional staffing of shifts uh, in Instacares, urgent cares, et cetera. So that's kind of the summary statement of where we are. I mean, in particular, I would say the ICUs are really just, it's uh, unrelenting in terms of uh, the amount of work. And, and remember, it's not just looking at just the numbers, it's all of the things in the system that actually are affected. So for example, right now, we have so many um, folks who are at risk for severe COVID and hospitalization that um, it's actually stressed our outpatient 
staffing and measures to try to get to people who have not been vaccinated, have a high risk for severe infection, hospitalization from COVID, and then want, say, monoclonal antibody therapy or new Pfizer oral antiviral therapy. And so we're shifting people from who normally work, say, in Instacare, urgent care into monoclonal antibodies and um, rapid uh, initiation of outpatient therapy. So when you do that, it actually moves some of the staffing for hospitals, hospital workers, uh, as well as uh, clinics. And so that's the effect that I think is hard to maybe measure and or appreciate uh, by some when we just look at flat numbers. But, you know, we have 115 uh, positive COVID individuals in our ICUs throughout the system right now. And that is in itself extremely taxing. It's beyond where we would normally function. So um, I've said this before and I caution folks that, you know, we, we try to think of things in black and white because it makes us feel better to say, oh, this is going to happen. This has happened. This is what this means. And the reality is it's gray. Um, and so we're, we're at slash beyond capacity when you think of how we would normally function. And even though we're not technically in inpatient crisis standards of care, we are in what we would consider a contingency phase or deep contingency because we're not delivering care uh, like we would have, say, in November of 2019. And so those things have to be kept in mind. And uh, it definitely is taking its toll on the staff in many ways. But uh, I got a lot of calls this weekend from staff who are um, who have had COVID, but all of their family members might have had COVID. And so they want to know how do they get their kids back to school safely without injuring or putting others, I should say, uh, at risk for disease because of exposures and, and uh, putting others like their grandparents or people who have weakened immune systems at risk. So, you know, not to pile on, but to show it's not just in a vacuum that that, that is just the ICU or just the hospitalizations and these pure sterile looking numbers, everything is being affected and people are in essentially a contingency level of care, even though it may not be called crisis standards of care. The reality is this is you can just look at the case numbers. If you want to look at things that are um, uh, things that you can kind of trend over time, whether we have change in testing or not, the reality is we had almost 10,000 cases in one day in the state of Utah last week. And right there, that should just tell you that this virus, and that's really not even reflecting the cases that haven't been reported, say home testing, et cetera. And so it is so much more transmissible. So by virtue of its, uh, its ability to stick to receptors in people's noses and their respiratory tracts more easily, more people will get infected. Even people who aren't who are, who are unfortunately vaccinated, but the key is is that it won't cause severe disease by and large. And it, it while it has shown per case uh, less virulence on some of the early data out of uh, UK, South Africa, the reality is because it affects so many more people, then just just that alone increases the number of people that will have. Um, risk for severe disease or hospitalization, because even if it's a lower percentage of folks that are at risk for a severe infection, the total numbers will be higher. That's why you're not seeing you know, the significant decrease in hospitalizations per se. Now, while you're not seeing a significant increase in hospitalizations, it's certainly not dropping. And so even though it may be less virulent, the fact is there's just so many more numbers of cases that those people who haven't been vaccinated, who have risk for, um, have a lot of uh, comorbidities or other medical illnesses that put them at risk for a severe case. That's why they still populate our ICUs, populate our hospitals. Um, and so I, I would be you know, very concerned about just the sheer numbers. Now, if we're going off of trends, it looks like it does peak it has peaked fairly, fairly quickly and it has dropped fairly quickly um, in terms of weeks instead of months. And so that's a good thing. Uh, but the reality is for the next, say, four to eight weeks, we've got our hospitals already being overwhelmed, shift shift in our resources, uh, healthcare workers doing their regular job, plus volunteering for other shifts. 
because of the urgent care increase. Um, and so that those are the big concerns. Dr. Todd Vento from Intermountain Healthcare. Folks, the most recent up-to-date information can be found at coronavirus.utah.gov. Get your tests, get your vaccinations, your boosters, and wash your hands, wear those masks, do what you got to do to keep yourself and those around you healthy. Also, I wanted to remind folks about online scams. We're in a new year and sliding towards tax season. In particular, there is a new one floating around that may look like it's coming from the Utah Tax Commission, and it isn't. They sent out a press release and said, if you receive an unsolicited email that appears to be from the Utah Tax Commission, do not click on links or provide the personal information. And while the Tax Commission may send an email in response to a request initiated by you, the taxpayer, such as a password reset, the Tax Commission generally does not initiate contact with taxpayers by email to request personal or financial information. That's according to Tax Commission Executive Director Scott Smith. Here is the phone number if you have questions to the Utah Tax Commission. It's 801-297-2200. 801-297-2200. Check tonight's show notes for a link to this information. And lastly, a service project to give you a heads up about in honor of Martin Luther King Day one week from today. It's happening down at Thanksgiving Point, and I spoke to the Point's Abby Allard for more details. Yeah, so um, we're doing another service project this year at the Museum of Natural Curiosity in the lobby. Um, That's on our gardens campus over at 3605 Garden Drive in Lehigh. Um, This year, we're going to be packing food bags for the Granite Education Foundation. So that services the Granite School District. Um, currently, the Granite School District has houses 95% of the refugee community in the state of Utah. 54% of the students there live at or below the poverty level, and 65% of students are food insecure. So it's definitely a needed population. Um, so we're going to be making weekend bags and snack packs so that Teachers can distribute um, food to their students, and the students can go home and know when their next meal is going to be. Abby Allard of Thanksgiving Point. Check tonight's show notes or rallies and resources for a link to this and other Martin Luther King Day service projects. The rest of the hour is a takeover of the show by our friends at the Island Wave podcast. And joining me are co-hosts Kamala Harris and Retta Topola. Hi, how are you? Aloha. Good, thank you. Glad to be here. So coming up, we are focusing on community health workers, right, Kamele? That's correct. We're here to share the information of what community health workers do and a lot of the work that Oretta has been doing for the past six years in in Utah. Oretta, so you are a community health worker, I understand, as well as Kamele. What have you been doing for the last six years and how has it changed over the last two of COVID? We've been building the community health worker workforce, um, introducing who community health workers are, not that they're new to Utah, we have promotoras and outreach workers who have been doing this work for a long time. Um, community health worker is a kind of a new term for this field of work, but um, we, they go uh, they go by different uh, titles. But we've been really just educating our systems, our, um, our even our community and the state about who community health workers are and what they do, and. Um, they focus on social determinants of health, on connecting community members to resources. And um, in the last two years, uh, just the demand for the work that CHWs do or in the recognition of the work of CHWs that CHWs do has, has um, expanded so much because they have a special connection to community members that are underserved, 
not reached and, and who are not aware about, you know, resources that are available to them um, and who face a lot of barriers. And so community health workers have been connecting them, especially during COVID, to testing sites, vaccination sites, um, information about what COVID is, um, just because the, our, our, these underserved communities, they don't use the normal channels of, of um, information. And so um, they may not receive the information that's, that's put out there. And so when the numbers hit really high, when COVID hit um, in their communities, the, uh, the state turned to community health workers to really get out there into the community and connect them. And so it's been a tough two years, but <laughs> we're still doing the work. <laughs> And Kamile, we're really talking about making this access to healthcare more more equitable, and it takes this extra push to communities that either don't feel uh, uh, apart or connected uh, with the the broader mainstream part of the community. Kamile, yes, in fact, all of us have barriers to healthcare. I mean, just think about it—the discomfort of going into an office and being vulnerable in front of a provider. You you know, who, who may or may not know you, specifically your ethnic group, your ethnic ba- health background. Um, but in the last couple of years, the CDC has um, really empowered and built the capacity of CHWs by providing them with toolkits and funding. So I work with the University of Utah in a COVID-19 health disparities grant and uh, you know, the local health departments are actually utilizing community health workers to reach our disproportionately affected communities with COVID-19. So who are we, we talking? Have, you say disproportionately affected communities. Can you oh, yes. kind of characterize that for about, us? If you go to the Utah Department of Health in their office, office of Health Disparities, they have data and reports from the last two years of what they've been doing with COVID. And in their research, they are finding the social determinant of, excuse me, the reported social determinant determinants of health by our underserved or ethnic and diverse communities. They list the 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 main four that I'll tell you that they all have in common are these uh, social determinants of health, which is housing. So, you know, keeping your person safe and warm or, or in, you know, in heat cold, and then uh, they need food. And that is definitely vital to your health and um, uh, utilities and vaccines. So, you know, this is the Utah Department of Health has this report for you. And if you don't see your community on this report, you need to contact them today and let them know that you want to represent your community and bring them your social issues uh-huh. so that they can help direct funding and resources to your group. We have a large Utah Muslim group building. And what we're learning as community health workers, because we work with their community health workers, is they are just as diverse as any other ethnic group. You know, they don't represent one person. They are different people with different languages, different cultures. And we need to learn and understand them so we can provide them the best care. And the best way to do that is through their community health workers. And it's the same as the Pacific Islander community, the Asian community, Hispanic, uh, Black, etc., and on and on and on. Those Correct. titles don't represent the full scope and breadth of that community. And so as we do this series, as we go on with the series from time to time here on Radioactive with the Island Wave, you'll meet folks and you'll meet their communities and learn more about them. That's what I really love about our collaboration. So thank you, Kamile and Oretta. Thank you so much. And I understand that coming up on January 26th, you'll be up at the Capitol 
trying to get lawmakers to pay attention to community health workers, Kamile. That's correct. We're inviting our CHWs from all over the state and our partners who support us to join us uh, at the Utah State Capitol Rotunda January 26th from 3.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. If you are a CHW, please register ahead of time at uphA.org in the CHW section, and they are, they are going to have lunch, and you'll be able to share some of your experiences as a CHW and share the impact that you have had in your community. We'll put those links in our show notes. Thank you so much, Arata Kamile. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to this next conversation right after this. Mahalo. Aloha Salt Lake. Utah Naloxone trains the public on how to save a life with Naloxone, the antidote to an opioid overdose that's completely legal for anyone in Utah to carry. For online training, visit utahnaloxone.org. Support for KRCL comes from the Utah Division of Arts and Museums. They provide support, services, and funding for artists and cultural organizations across the state of Utah. More at artsandmuseums.utah.gov Downsizing your car collection or simply tired of looking at that project car sitting in the back of your driveway in pieces? Either way, consider donating it to KRCL and our friends at Cars Inc. will take it from there. No hassles, no fees. You get a tax receipt and KRCL gets a donation. But best of all, the music you love never stops. Visit the support tab at krcl.org for more information and how to donate. Thanks, y'all. Aloha. Aloha. Welcome to the Community Health Workers Series by the Island Wave Podcast with your host, Oretta Tupola and Kamile Harris. This is the Island Wave. Aloha, I'd like to say welcome to Syriac Alvarez Valle. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I have my co-host, Oreta Tupola, a community health worker extraordinaire, I would say. Could you ladies introduce yourselves and let us know about the work that you're doing? Yeah, uh, I guess I can go first. Uh, my name is Syriac Alvarez Valle. I'm a policy analyst at Voices for Utah Children. Our organization works on different policies. Essentially, it just asks the first question, is it good for kids? Um, and really rely on trying to make sure that our state supports kids and families in the best way possible. And I also get the honor of working as the co-chair of the Finance and Advocacy Committee for the Community Health Worker Coalition. Um, and because of that, I've gotten connected to so many wonderful community health workers, including you, um, Oretta, and yeah, super excited to to be here today. Thank you. Uh, Oretta Tupola, Program Coordinator for the Utah Public Health Association, Community Health Worker Section, and then involved in a lot of everything CHW here in the state of Utah. Just glad to be here this new year to get more work going and especially um, to continue planning out this legislation. So yeah, that's exciting. Tell us about the Community Health Worker Bill. I know that Stephanie Burdick is an author of the bill who's also a community advocate and you two are working together to co-author the bill and then Oretta you're a consultant I'm just I'm helping guide and look at all the you know what the best way um, for Utah was to in approaching this the legislation and and as far as certification goes and 
other things related to the CHW work that we're doing here in Utah. But really, um, I've learned so much from Syriac and Stephanie in um, the advocacy realm of things because uh, a lot of this work is so important. And this this particular um, piece of this work is is going to make a huge difference in our um, advocating for CHWs moving forward. There's a lot of history behind why we got to this point, and maybe Syria can share some of that uh, as she uh, talks. But um, it, I, I don't. We just don't think that community health workers really understand the importance of of this bill and how it's going to help us moving forward. Um, and also advocacy work in general. You know. Um, we just go about doing our things. And then, you know, when people want to protest or do fight for things, bills, we're like, okay, we'll get on board. But the depth of the work that goes into advocacy is so important to understand if you're not, if it's not your thing, because, because advocacy definitely, I, I haven't been as much involved only when it came down to like lobbying for specific things when it comes to funding and all of that stuff. But never really understood how it impacts our work on the front line. And so um, learning through this past year um, with Syriac and Stephanie has been so awesome. And I just love like just sitting there and learning the process because it, it really is important to the work we're doing. Thank you, Arata. So Syriac, what is in this bill? Yeah, um, I think just to give a little bit of background, like Loretta was saying, um, there's been a lot of work that's gone into like getting to this point of the bill um, and getting to this legislative session. Like Stephanie and I started as co-chairs probably back in 2018, 2019. So from that year, we, we began meeting with community health workers, talking to them, seeing what's important, seeing what issues were, were um, important to our community health workers. And um, one that rose to the top was certification. And after surveying um, community health workers, it just seemed more and more that this was something that could posit positively impact our community health workers. And more importantly than that, we wanted to do it in a way that was like slow and steady, right, to make sure that we had all of the right input, all of the right people, um, all of the concerns that people had were once we had a bill drafted that we made sure that we could address that. And so for the past couple of years, we've been meeting with community health workers, doing different trainings and on advocacy uh, with the with the section, with uh, different folks on like, here's what uh, here's what the process is like. So um, like Loretta was saying, not everybody has like gotten the opportunity, right, to do advocacy. So it's important not to just say like, okay, go and do the, the advocacy, but like explaining what it what it is, what the impact of going through the legislative session um, will be. And so now fast forward to 2022, uh, we have a, a community health worker bill um, with Senator Luz Escamilla, and it's currently in the drafting phase. So we still have a, um, we're waiting for the final draft to be released early uh, for the legislative session on the 18th, January 18th, but included in the bill, um, we have different pieces that would set requirements for what community health workers would have to um, complete for their competency-based curriculum that follows the core skills that ha that have already been um, followed for the uh, certificate, including advocacy, outreach, capacity building, 
individual and community assessment, coordinating and navigation, interpersonal relationship building, things like that. Um, it is also a voluntary certificate, certification, sorry, um, that creates a that's a pathway, right? A certification pathway. That means not everybody has to do it if they if it doesn't meet their needs of their organization. Uh, it creates a CHW certification advisory board uh, at the Department of Health and Human Services um, to help establish this certification and make sure it's done right. Um, and yeah, for the requirements, we also have a grandparenting component to make sure that those who have been doing the work for a really long time uh, are able to get grandparented into the program um, after completing 4,000 hours or what, yeah, after having done 4,000 hours, which many of them, right, who've done this for so long already have. Right. Thank you. I, I, I know you have a one day one pager draft that you shared and um is this available to everyone uh or it will you be publishing just yeah. the final okay yeah we'll be publishing the final uh draft including some of the endorsement organizations um of people who support the bill uh probably in the next couple of weeks now i know there's concerns about certification because of certain requirements um like citizenship is a big concern because a lot of our community health workers do not have citizenship and they do their work because a lot of their community does not have citizenship so they're connecting them with resources and providing them pathways to obtain resources especially during COVID-19. What does the bill do for those community health workers? Yeah thank you. I think that's a great question. I know that for a lot of folks that 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 concern can be really big and we don't want to create any barriers to entry for any of our community health workers. Uh, and so our requirements just include being a Utah resident who is over 16 and acts like a community health worker and completes the hours that we have, completes the curriculum and completes the application and pays the fee. So instead, so we are not having a requirement for that and instead using other requirements to make sure that, you know, those who want to and can be community health workers um, will be able to without necessarily adding more red tape or more barriers, right, into entry for any of the community health workers that, that are doing this right now. Yes, even the CDC has um, validated the work that our community health workers have done and call them essential workers. And and I, I believe that there's even language in their writing to open pathways for essential workers to get citizenship through their work, or at least access to resources despite their citizenship, right? because right. uh, they've become that essential worker for our communities. Like even though we have um, uh, immigration issues in our communities, they're still our community members and making vital contributions to our society. Would you agree? Yeah, totally. I, I want to welcome Tile Afangatele. Aloha, Tile. Good morning, Tile. Aloha. Thank you for joining us today. And Tile, you are a community health worker. And for how many years? And tell us about your journey. Um, yeah, I think um, community health worker before it was actually called community health work um, was something that was ingrained, you know, within me from a very young age. Um, I think um, back to my parents um, growing up, um, it was something that we did, but we didn't necessarily call it community health worker, right? 
if there was a new um, family who came into town, we would say, okay, you need A, B, and C. You need your job, you need your social security, you need your ID, um, and let's get these things done so that way we can get all those things for you to thrive. Um, and so when the pandemic um, hit, um, it kind of highlighted the inequities within um, BIPOC communities um, and how um, disproportionately um, it impacted our people. And so it's important for, um, for us to step up and be the change that we want to see. And so um, when Oretta sent us the information um, for the community health worker training, um, we jumped on it. And um, ever since then, we've been officially community health workers, but unofficially, I would say, I won't say my age, but for a very long time. And so um, it's <laughs> one thing I know about you, Tilly, and <laughs> I want to share with you a story is Susie told me that when you were a young boy, you used to go to the senior living center to serve and cook and that you started baking there. And I remember back in 2006, seven, going to that senior living center and seeing this young Polynesian boy helping and friendly. And that was you. Like, <laughs> I remember oh you when you were a young boy <laughs> working at the Senior Living Center. Our Taylorsville Gardens Ward came and did a service project at the same Senior Living Center. And I just oh, thought wow. that was such a wonderful first full circle moment with me um, uh, for you and uh, for you and I that uh, your service to our community is very consistent. And you started from a young boy because that's as a young boy, because that's what your family was doing, right? So you became a health, a, a, a young community health worker, and the bill even addresses the age limit of 16. So even youth have a place in this work, and I just love that. And thank yeah. you for your shining example. Sorry, Orita, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say it's crazy because you know <clears throat> the normal paths of finding a professional career, you, you know the the stories of like going to school, figuring out what you want to do, going to career fairs, going and then grad, getting your college degree or whatever. This this track is so different in so many ways. And, and for a lot of us who are now community health workers, that's how we started. It was something that we were doing for a long time because it's practiced in our communities, in these communities. And, um, and we've been helping each other navigate these systems because of all these barriers that have been put in front of us, even from our grandparents. And still to this day, we're helping navigate these same systems who can consistently keep putting these barriers on us. Be, you know, to me, living our, 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 our best lives, especially in America, you know, it's right. like sad to look at where we are and then look at where we are being here for so long and not seeing any real change. I, I mean, you know, I'm grateful for all that I have my freedom and all of that, but the, these, these barriers that have been placed on our communities, these health inequities, um, I, I'm grateful for the pandemic and that it has really called that out for us and given us an opportunity to, to really talk about the real issues and, and what, what I think we don't, or community health workers or even others, the stakeholders, the state, they don't really understand is how this work relates to um, the equity pieces that that are also being addressed around you know this country and um, people have been trying to say well what community health workers don't work on health I mean on equity I mean health equity but not equity in general and I'm like 
No, no, we do. Because what we work on are the inequities that were caused because of, you know, these equity issues that that um, that have just ho been holding us back for so long. And um, what I love about this bill, uh, when you ask the question about um, our undocumented, is that we really looked at that as we worked on the, the, the language, the approaches, who, who should be involved. Should we even go to legislation? Because we knew that they would ask questions about these things. Um, but we, we've been, like Syriac said, looking really into what the CHWs want and feel and what's the best thing for them. Because we could have easily adopted straight from somebody else what they're doing in other states. But we had to really dissect this language, even the one we chose, which was the Texas Texas bill, and even go through that language and say, wait, this we have to say differently, or this it might be different. Because there's so many, just like you know, working in the general public, there's so many different personalities and beliefs and backgrounds of people. We had to study the legislature legislators as well. What are they, what are they for? What are they against? What you know, what are their beliefs behind? Um, all of this, it's a lot of work that has gone into um, where we are today. And, and that's where, again, I go back to the recognition of like what Syriac and Stephanie are doing in leading this out because people think it's easy, but it's not. And, and we have already gone through some, uh, I don't know what to call it, <laughs> skepticism from some of the legislators and others who are like, have so many questions about why do you need this recognition? But um, right. it's important for us to to um, make sure, even when we answer simple questions like that, that our language is to the T, like perfect, um, representing the CHWs on a scale of different um, beliefs and, and thoughts around certification. And so, um, again, like this bill is huge. This is going to be historical for us if we get this done, especially here in the state of Utah. <laughs> you make so many great points, Zaretta, and I feel like that our legislatures on the Hill and our community need to understand that health disparities are driven by social and economic inequities, mm -hmm. economic stability, neighborhood and physical environments, mm -hmm. education, food, community safety and social context, and healthcare system. If we have an un undocumented family, they're not going to seek out healthcare from the system, mm -hmm. right? The fear is that they will be deported, that they'll face um, discrimination. And, and when you get to the, if you can get a family to the healthcare system, and they do face discrimination, you know, we've heard from our community health worker advocates what can happen and how they help out. I'd love for you, all of you, to give an example of a community health worker impact that you have witnessed or that you have been party to. I'd love for you to be able to share that with the community. I know, Tile, you do a lot of work in our Pacific Island community and have with uh, PICTAR, the Pacific Island Knowledge to Action Resources. What are some of the things that you've seen, some of the barriers that you've had to, to plow through for our community? there? Um, I think most recently, um, you know, as far as the pandemic rate, vaccination rates, and um, 
And um, as far as like mortality and hospitalization, um, NHPI folks or Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders um, have been um, number one or number two for the entire um, duration of you know this pandemic. And so I think um, one of the many initiatives that we focus on is um, pandemic pandemic response. But then flipping that, how do we um, not be so responsive but be more proactive as a community? What things we need to do so? Um, this kind of sparked conversation as far as like health as a as in general, right? Whether it be mental health, physical health, how do we how do we as NHPI folks or community respond to um to healthcare and how can we break down those barriers um, in order to access healthcare and to be able to feel more comfortable in those spaces that um, we aren't normally in. And so um, I think that's one of the many initiatives that we've been working for as far as um, NHPI folks, but I know Oretta and Tarak have many examples as well. Thank you so much, Tile. Um, Syriac or Oretta? Sure. I have gotten to know the work of community health workers just like on a personal level and on the work level. And I just got to say that like every time I hear another story, I just know that the, the impact is real, right? Like to really helping like a family, but also their community um, and knowing and empowering um, community members. I, some of the work that we were, my organization works a lot on policy. And so we often look at community health workers to, to see like, what are, what are families facing? What, like, what are difficulties that, that happen? And um, one of the community health workers that we worked um, with helped a family get health insurance, which is like small, right? Like let's get them enrolled into CHIP, but it made a huge impact on the family itself um, to helping them not only, you know, access doctors, um, but help them through that, like that process, like you were saying, um, Kamile, um, like it's not, it's not always just about like, hey, you have health insurance. Okay, you're done. Like, okay, you have health insurance. Now you have to like learn how to go into the system. Like, how do you get a doctor's appointment? when you're at the doctors, how do you like ask the right questions? How do you ask about medications or, you know, when you get the medications, like if it's not the one for you, how do you like empower the family member or the parent to like say, you know what, this isn't working for my family. Like how, like those like cultural, right. Like um, navigation pieces. I think um, I've seen in many different um, examples, but that was just one of the many families that I just saw like that really was able to get help from community health worker, but then also be empowered, right, to that next level and say like, okay, now at the next time, I know how to navigate the system a little bit better. And I am empowered to be able to talk to a doctor in a different way. So I, yeah, again, the work of community health workers is amazing and super impactful. And I'm super excited that we're gonna continue to uplift um, the work uh, during this legislative session. Me too. and. I think you can be a community health worker for the community and for your own family. Like I, I'm living, my niece is living with me and she's reluctant to uh, receive health care. So then there's all these different reasons why she doesn't think that she needs to. And here I am trying to help her cross off these barriers on her list to, 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 you know, bring that perspective that it is important to get your health, especially as somebody receiving a health insurance, you know, like, to bring forth a more um, holistic way of, you know, personally choosing to take advantage of, of these plans. And versus I know that a lot of community health workers are trying to connect people with resources. There are people who already have the resources that just right. need a little bit more education. Aloha, this is Kamile Harris with my co-host. Oretta Tupola. You're listening to the Island Wave takeover of Radioactive on KRCL. 
I want to just say that the the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute has a definition of the role of community health workers. They are lay members of the community who work either for pay or as a volunteer in association with the local healthcare system in both urban and rural environments and usually share their ethnicity, language, socioeconomic status, and life experiences with community members that they serve. So these are people brought up by their own community as leaders and I have heard said many times about their com- about community health workers that their word is their currency their ability to navigate a system and earn trust within the community is what makes their work so valuable. And then we have higher institutions, like I work for the University of Utah as a health equity coordinator, and I obtained this position based on my merits as a community health worker and my connections within the community, my community, as a Native Hawaiian. They also say about community health worker services is that uh, they are not not limited to these, but improve access to healthcare services, increase health and screening response. They better understand the community member, you know, the, the social service systems between the community member and the institution. Um, they they can increase use of healthcare services, even business care services. I know that PICTAR has been um, instrumental in getting a lot of microloans for Pacific Island businesses by just getting the word out and and being a trusted face for them to come to when they need that. So I, I want to wrap this all up in a way where let's talk to existing community health workers, Areta. You're the one who even told me <laughs> that I was a community health worker. So who is a community health worker? Who should be listening to this recording and saying to themselves, I am a community health worker? And I'd love to, for all of our panel to address that question. Yeah, I, I think it's it's been hard, especially because of this new title that has been placed in this field of work, um, because people get really distracted when we say community health and, and think that this is just related to health resources and, and, you know, hospitals and clinical work uh, when it really isn't. And when I hear the words community health, to me, it means the health of everything related to health in a community that 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 um, even includes like um, I think Syriac mentioned or you did in your definition, access to playgrounds, access to gyms, access to, you know, um, other resources, even like medical insurance or um, that that may not be related to <clears throat> physical health, but it impacts our health in general. And when you look at the communities that we serve and their physical layouts and the, what exists in those communities, it's very different. You can tell <laughs> where you are depending on where you live and we, where we are. There are so many barriers. I mean, physical barriers to us accessing health. Uh, whether it's transportation or, you know, um, being able to walk to the store in a safe environment, all of those things are part of community health. And um, people are always trying to tell me, you need, like, narrow it down, narrow it down, like, what do you do? What specifically do you do? And, um, and it's, it really is everything. If it, if my community feels like they don't have uh, they're not being treated fairly in the education system. I will go there and say, let me go find out who you need to talk to, especially if the people who you're supposed to be talking to are not helping you. How do we go to the next level? The knowledge and the education that we lack about these processes and protocols that uh, that give us access to fight for 
fair rates. That's the that's the gap in in the work that we are doing. And um, even though the focus has been on how to apply for insurance, who qualifies for insurance, I mean, if you talk to other Americans, this is a common knowledge to them. Why do we not have that common knowledge? We go to the we I mean you know, we don't all go to the same schools, but <laughs> but you're supposed to be getting this education in in this in the Western system that but we're not getting that. And so <clears throat> when I think of community health workers, it's everything community. Any any barriers in front of them that I know, you know, I might have more knowledge about um that I can help connect them to, that is what we do. And and the fight with a lot of people have 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 been, well, do you have a degree in what you do? <laughs> I'm like, we've been yeah, navigating yeah. these systems since before even you were born. Without a degree. Fall, <laughs> and made it this far because of educating ourselves. Like, right. I compare it to what people say, like, book smart and street smart. Community right. health that's the difference. And the other difference is what you guys all mentioned is that trusted relationship. It's hard, believe it or not, for a lot of people to understand why don't you trust the government? Or why don't you trust the doctor? He's an expert. He went to school. He has a degree. He has, you know, blah, blah, blah behind his name. And and um and here you are listening to your auntie or your cousin who's telling you, no, don't don't put that on the paper. Who's just leave it blank and then we'll turn it in because they they've gone through it. That's the expertise that we have in helping our navigate uh, our community members navigate these systems because the systems are not set up for us. They're, they're not. Someone said this in a webinar the other uh, the other um, last month uh, when we were talking about how we navigate systems that that there are um, the government or these systems need to to understand that the way they have set up these systems, they're not set up for our communities. They don't work. These payment models that they're trying to implement of 15 minute visits or 20 minute or 30 minutes. I am on the phone for two hours with one client. And that's like just in the first 30 minutes of, of my day, I get a call and I'm on the, I may be on the phone for the rest of the day with one client because I'm trying to build trust with them, trying to figure out you know, how do we prioritize what is going on with you because of there are so many multiple things that we face. And so anyways, I've gone about this forever, but that <laughs> expertise of understanding the mistrust or the disconnect between our systems and our community, that's where our expertise comes in. And I don't need a degree to tell me the way I grew up is, you know, wrong or right, or this is how you do things. Because growing up in the communities that we have been in and witnessing all of these barriers firsthand, that's my expertise. That's how I know I can help other people. And the way I'm doing it is the way we have to do it because of these barriers that have been placed upon us. And so, yeah, let, let, let's talk a little <laughs> bit. Of, let's talk about those barriers. They are racism and racism causes a community entire communities to lack trust and authority they they don't value themselves because that is what racism is supposed to do right that's that what they're trying to accomplish is to devalue people to eventually eliminate them from resources and also colonization when we were colonized we were devalued and generationally that devalue is passed on 
plus the systems put in place like health the healthcare system the governmental system they were not done with community basic the basic average community members at the table these policies and procedures are put into place whether we like it or not whether it comes to healthcare housing food distribution all the things that we need to live our lives they're capitalized on and then distributed to us this is a one way relationship right and what i love about pictar uh, the Pacific Island Knowledge to Action Resources is they have a food resource calendar. You can get free food seven days a week. And if you can't come to the food, we will bring the food to you. That is the example of community health workers and the barriers that they can eliminate. With all that you mentioned and calling out racism and the, you know, the historical trauma that our communities have faced that have led us here, I wanted to ask Syriac and Tilly if they could share um, some their thoughts around this, because as we move forward, where everyone's trying to figure out, like, how do we move forward? What do we do? What do we need to do that's different? Because I get it. I mean, I'm not in no way trying to say, you know, that didn't happen or this ha- that happened a long time ago. But I, but I do think that we need to recognize that but also figure out how do we move forward now together in this work to make sure that there is there is change. So I just wanted to hear their thoughts around this. Yeah, I can uh, share first and I'd love to hear from you too, Tile. I think community health workers are just a really good example of uh, creating change, right, in partnership with community members and community leaders. During the pandemic, we saw this a lot where there was just a lot of need and government agencies like weren't exactly sure how to reach community members about the resources that they had, whether it was rental assistance, testing, uh, COVID cases. And like Tile um, alluded to, there was just like people of color, like Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color communities. We just saw high rates of like COVID cases and not getting tested and just a lot of families sick, not sure how to isolate and community health workers and other folks, right, like stepped in and said, like, this is how you reach these communities. This is how change happens. Um, I know with the like the food banks, they weren't necessarily culturally relevant food banks. And so a lot of communities of color like went and like tried to get food and like for the Latinx community, they didn't have like tortillas and that's like a safe right and so it was thanks to community health workers that you know some of that was actually changed or the documents that were needed people like mixed status families immigrant families were afraid of going in and so they changed the requirements right like not to need necessarily need all of those paperwork or with the housing assistance there were some ids that were not allowed right and that they changed them because people were able to to step up and say things so i think um, when it comes to all of the barriers and structural systems that are set in place, um, there's a lot of history of like not being included. And so I think in this moment, we have to continue to push, right? Community health workers, community leaders, and so many others to be included in these conversations to create that change while also acknowledging, right? Like there is a long history of people not being able to do a lot of different things, um, including, right, like racist, um, like histories that we have to acknowledge on why communities are hesitant, but also, right, like bring our communities along and say like, yes, that is true, but we have to like, but this is how we're going to do things differently. Um, Because, yeah, it's going to take a long time. And I think community health workers are like a piece of that puzzle. Um, But we also need the systems and structures to come with us, right? 
right? Instead of just like people on the ground being the only ones that are pushing for change because it's gonna, it's it took a lot, right? To get to where we are. So it's gonna take a lot and a lot of different changes to make sure that we do it in a right way, in an equitable way. Thank you. I love that. Um, I, I echo everything that has been shared within this space. I think I love it, acknowledging and respecting that history and then allowing um, the people who have been impacted by you know, whether it's colonization, racism, be the change, be the voices. Uh, we don't need additional barriers. We need our voices to be highlighted and then elevated because we know what we need. Um, and I think that's the joy of um, calling myself a CHW. Sorry, I'm getting emotional just because the the amount of um, good things that have happened because of CHW voices have been at the forefront is endless. And imagine if, you know, people just get out of the ways and these systems, you know, change for the better and LW, you know, CHW voices, then more things can change. Um, we can have a more equitable solutions or like just equity in general, right? Thank you for having me. It's been an honor to join these wonderful humans on this, this panel. Oh, I love that. Thank you, because you are you always make me get emotional. And I'm usually the one that first cries in, on every call or discussion about this work. But to the point of my question, I, I just wanted to point out like what you said, Zuriak. This is not something that is going to change overnight. I mean, if it, if it was, we, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. It would have changed a long time ago. But I think like when you ask that question, Kamaile, of what do I, we want or I want community health workers to know, it's that we have to remain strong in this fight, that it's this right now to me is not for me. This is for my grandsons and for my children, because I'm, the change is going to come then. It's not going to happen now. I mean, we have to make these small changes as we go, but they are who I want to see this change for. I wanted to, to oh. share with our community members who are doing community advocacy, who believe in community advocacy and magnifying the community voice to join the UPHA, uh, the Utah Public Health Association, Utah Community Health Worker section. It's a small fee for the year. You get information about jobs and training, certification, and we wanna invite you to join us our Community Health Worker Day on the Hill is on January 26th from 3.30 to 5.30. We'll be talking to different legislators about the bill and the importance of community health workers and the impact that community health workers have on different like families, individuals, and also communities and systems. So we'd love to have anybody who's a community health worker join us that day and just be up there and talk about the importance again of community health workers and why the certification bill would make a huge difference to the work that you all do. So everyone's invited and yeah happy to share out the flyer too yeah we need as many chws and community-based organizations even even our allies to come and support us because this day again it's it's going to be huge and and um we just need all of us to stand together the strength is in our numbers and so we hope that everybody comes out, especially those who are already members of our community health worker section and, and then our, our community leaders, our champions out there who 
have been helping us to recruit and gather our community members together. We, we hope you all can make it there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today and for your work in advancing and building capacity for community health workers. Thanks so much. Thank you. Mahalo KRCL for allowing us this space to share information about our community health workers series. For more Island Wave podcast, you can find us on Podbean. And as we say goodbye, or in Hawaii, we would say, see you later, or ahuiho. We want to play this classic Hawaiian song for you, Island Style by John Cruz. Ahuiho. This is the Island Wave.